0: Well, praise the Lord, everybody. Isn't it good to be in the house of God on a Sunday morning? Amen. God is abundantly good. His goodness is more than I could ever begin to tell. Amen. Next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday night, Wednesday, we take our son Harrison for his annual checkup at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Uh, We've been doing this now for 13 years. Amen. And we will go down there and they will... Uh, do some uh, testing, I guess. It's different every time. Uh, they will look at his heart. Their their main concern as he grows is the coarctation repair that they did when he was six days old. Uh, they told us then to expect multiple return surgeries before he was a teenager. Here we are this year. He is a teenager. We've never had another surgery. Every year there is the specter of uh, the possibility that uh, something will need to be done medically to enlarge the repair site every year we get the good news that that isn't necessary. we're just praying that God would do the same thing amen our doctor Dr Fontenot, the doctor who has been Harrison's cardiologist since he was a baby uh, only works on Wednesdays so we he he was a full you know he's full time back then but he's semi-retired now. He only works on Wednesdays, which means that appointment is on a Wednesday every year. So that means that, and it's in the afternoon. So it means that we'll be in Little Rock Wednesday afternoon for a doctor's appointment and uh, with an indefinite time frame. So we may or may not be here Wednesday night. Usually we're able to come in during the middle of that service when this happens, but we will see how that works out. That's the reason why Brother and Sister Evans will be with us Wednesday night for our breakout sessions. Amen you have your Bible, want to turn with me, Romans chapter 1, amen. I'm very excited about having Brother Hobbs with us next Sunday. Going to have a great, great time in our 2 o'clock service, and Brother Kenneth O'Connell with us tonight, amen. And, and I, again, I believe that you'll be blessed by his ministry, amen. Last Sunday, we introduced the book of Romans. I spent uh, the whole lesson, never really got into any scripture from the book of Romans we just talked about. Uh, the Apostle Paul, how that Saul became Paul, how he experienced such a dramatic conversion on that Damascus road, and how that conversion impacted his life. And now we find him... Uh, in the winter of AD 56 to 57, getting ready to uh, preparing to take a journey to Rome for the purpose of evangelizing or starting missions works in Spain. And in that desire, he sits down and puts pen to paper and writes a letter to the Roman church so that they will know Uh, who he is, what he is teaching, preaching, establish them in the doctrine so that when he gets to Rome, he'll have a firm base from which to work in his missionary journey. So this is the the thought and the plan and the purpose behind the book of Romans. We start this morning with the first verse in Romans chapter 1. You can kind of turn there if you want to Romans 1 and 1. Amen. Let me say this as an introduction to what we're going to talk about. Charlie discovered his true calling late in life. He had been a college English teacher, but suddenly he quit his position as a professor to become a mailman. And after explaining his choice to a friend, the friend thought he would encourage him with that old adage. He said, Charlie, if you're going to be a mailman, that's okay. Okay. Just be the best mailman in the whole world. And Charlie quickly looked back at his friend and said, Man, i got to tell you, I am a lousy mailman. I am the last one to get back to the post office every day. And ever since I started this new job, I can't sleep at night. When pressed for an explanation, Charlie said, There are so many lonely people on my route who've never had anyone to visit with them until I became a mailman. Have you ever tried to sleep after drinking 15 to 20 cups of coffee in a day? Charlie was finally doing what Charlie was made to do. He was serving people. And for the first time in his life, he had discovered that special sense of fulfillment that comes to a person who knows that they are doing something meaningful with their life. Purpose. There is nothing quite like living your life with purpose. Living your life for a meaningful purpose. What we discover in the opening verses of the book of Romans is that much like Charlie, after the Damascus Road experience, Paul has discovered his purpose in life. And now we're going to get the opportunity to hear him firsthand as he expounds upon his passion for that purpose. Now Paul begins the letter with a traditional salutation. Uh, the, The traditional salutation would be uh, a really short greeting, but perhaps because the recipients of this letter have never met Paul, perhaps because they don't know him yet, he expands that tra- traditional format and makes an e- extra effort to introduce himself and his message to the Roman Christians. He wants them to know who he is before he ever stands before them. He wants them to know what he stands for, what he preaches, and what he teaches before he ever gets to them. So Paul will identify himself in the first seven verses of the book of Romans. His identity here is is hinged upon his commitment to his calling, his commitment to people, and his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The common form of a greeting in Paul's day would have been Paul to John greetings. It would have been X to Y greetings. It would have been who the author was to the recipients of the letter and then just the simple word greetings Then you get into the letter. Paul only varies from that greeting slightly in most of his letters. But at the beginning of Romans there are six meaningful verses that describe Paul before we ever get to the second word of that greeting. It should say Paul to the church in Rome, greetings. We get Paul and then we get six verses before we get to two. Six meaningful verses that identify Paul. Six verses that establish his credentials and his mission. And in those initial six verses, Paul summarizes who he is and what he does. So we begin in Romans chapter one and verse one. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So Paul first introduced himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. That's a phrase that is reminiscent of the identifier that was used by the Old Testament prophets who referred to themselves as the servants of God. Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Now that Greek word for servant literally means a slave servant is a rather nice way to translate it it literally means i am a slave of jesus christ now what is notable here is that this is what paul leads with he could have said a whole lot about himself As a matter of fact, in these six verses, he's going to say a whole lot about himself. But he leads with this. This is the first thing Paul wants you to know about him. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I am a servant to Jesus Christ. This gives important insight on how Paul looks at himself, on how he views himself. Paul's highest calling, Paul's greatest purpose in life, the preeminent statement that identifies Paul is that he is absolutely and undeniably devoted to Jesus Christ. I am a servant of Jesus. If you don't get anything else about me, get this. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I am his. I belong to him. I am completely at his disposal I will do what he tells me to do I will go where he tells me to go I will say what he tells me to say because he, am, he is the master and I am the servant uh, he is the master and I am the slave my entire life belongs to Jesus I am at his Disposal. That singular purpose in life for Paul is to do whatever Jesus Christ commissions him to do. That's the first thing he wants you to know about him. I am devoted. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Then he says, called to be an apostle. So if his singular purpose in life is to do whatever Jesus has commissioned him to do then the second statement is this is what He has commissioned me to do. He has called him to be an apostle. That word apostle means one that is sent or a messenger. And as we learned last week on that road to Damascus, Paul's call to become an apostle came directly from Jesus Christ. Jesus called him to be an apostle. It wasn't something he took on himself. It wasn't something that was bestowed upon him by other men. Jesus called him to be an apostle. Now, Paul is not one of the original 12. But he is a unique man with a unique calling. When Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, he called him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile world. And Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, which means that he is perfectly suited to minister to the Roman church, which is largely made up of Gentile converts. So he wants you to know, first of all, I am the servant of Jesus Christ, and I am called to be an apostle. Next, he wants you to know that he is separated unto the gospel of God. Paul has gone from being a Pharisee who was separated unto the oral tradition of the Hebrews to be an apostle of Jesus Christ who is separated unto the gospel of God. And that word separate is important. As a Pharisee, Paul set himself apart. He, there were things he wouldn't do. There were places he wouldn't go. There were things he wouldn't say. There were things he wasn't going to be involved in because he was separated unto that tradition. But now Paul carries that same devotion and that same dedication into his life as a servant of Jesus Christ. He's still separated. He's separated unto the gospel of God. He has been set apart for the ministry of the gospel. That means there are some places he doesn't go. That means there are some things he doesn't do. That means there are some words that never come out of his mouth. That means that he has been separated to the gospel of God. It also means that all of the rich and diversified gifts of Paul's heritage, his status, As a Jew and as a Roman, his education, his upbringing, everything in his life up to this point was divinely ordained by God to prepare him for this calling. The Lord said of Paul to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, speaking of Paul, he said, For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul recognizes my entire life has been about this calling. My entire, even before I ever knew that God was calling me, even before I ever knew that that God had a purpose like this for my life, everything in my life has been for this purpose. I have been set apart unto God. I have been set apart unto his purpose. I have been set apart. I've been chosen by God and set apart to be a minister of the gospel of God. Now the gospel, as you well know, is the good news about salvation. It is literally the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is notable that the source of this gospel is God. It didn't come from man. It didn't come from human philosophy. It didn't come from man's wisdom. This isn't man's idea of how to save himself. This is the gospel of God. It came from God. We're saved by the death of Burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are saved by appropriating that into our lives. How do we do that? We die in repentance. In repentance, we go to an altar and we die out to sin. We are buried with Jesus Christ into Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism so we die and at a repentance altar of repentance we're buried with him in baptism and when we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost we receive that same spirit of resurrection and life that dwelt in Jesus Christ we're saved by the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the gospel and that is the divine plan of God verse 2 says which he had promised for by his prophets in the holy scriptures this good news this gospel is not a recent development it's, it is good news but it's not new news the old testament prophets have promised for years that this was coming this didn't just come out of the blue This is something that has been spoken of, that has been written of, that has been forecasted for years. The prophets of old. Predicted the birth of Jesus Christ. They predicted his suffering and his death, his burial and his resurrection. They even predicted the formation of a new covenant that would take the place of the old covenant. They predicted the formation of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. All of it was foretold. None of it came as a huge surprise to the Word of God. It was something that had been broadcast. It's something that had been forecast. This was promised before by the prophets in the Holy Scripture. Now, what's important about this is that Paul takes great pains all through the book of Romans, beginning here, to establish all of his major doctrinal points on the firm foundation of the Old Testament this is something we saw out of Peter when we were reading First and Second Peter if you remember Peter said I was an eyewitness of the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus Christ I, I saw with mine own eyes I witnessed it But don't just take my word for it. Everything that I preach to you, everything that I teach to you, everything that I declare to you is founded on the law and the prophets. All of it is based on the Old Testament. This isn't a new thing. This is something that God's been telling he was going to do since the beginning. All of the New Testament leaders and teachers of that first century they, they always based their doctrine on the scriptures they had it, which was the Old Testament. They never discounted the importance of the foundation that was laid in the Old Testament. What that tells me, everything they taught, everything they preached was built on that suitable foundation of the Old Testament, that solid foundation that had been laid by the prophets and the law. If we ignore that, We do it at our own peril. If we, some will take and say, uh, because of the era that we live in, we can ridicule the Old Testament. We can laugh it to scorn and we can mock it and push it aside and say it doesn't matter anymore. Amen. Everything that Peter taught, everything that Paul taught, everything that James taught, everything that John taught, and everything that Jesus Christ taught was based on the foundation of the Old Testament it is the basis for the new covenant now, the new covenant is radically different but the Old Testament is the basis upon which it is founded does that make sense Romans chapter 1 and verse 3 then says concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh verses 3 and 4 go together the subject Paul tells us of the gospel of God that thing that was foretold before is his son Jesus Christ who is Lord of all the term son refers to the manifestation of God in the flesh and verses three and four work together verse three presents the identity of Jesus Christ according to the flesh and verse 4 presents the identity of Jesus Christ according to the spirit of holiness, which is the Hebrew word way of saying the spirit of God. In the combination of verses 3 and 4 together, we see the very real humanity of Jesus Christ right alongside the very real deity. Of Jesus Christ as a man Jesus is the Son of God according to the human nature he is of the seed of David begotten of God and born of Mary a human flesh and blood according to his divine nature Jesus is the one God who is revealed in the Old Testament. He is the manifestation of the one true God of the ages. The ancient of days has added to himself what he never had before. He who is spirit has made for himself a body so that he could shed his blood for the redemption of his people. So in verses 3 and 4, we get that contrast. Verse 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So we got according to the flesh in verse 3, according to the Spirit in verse 4. We see flesh on one side, we see Spirit on the other. And what validates the fact that Jesus Christ is both the God and man is not just what he said, it's not just the doctrine he preached, it's not even just the miracles that he did the validation of the deity of Jesus Christ is the fact that he was crucified on a cross, he laid in a bald tomb for three days, he was good and dead and then he got up out of that grave, amen the resurrection from the dead is the validation of the deity of Jesus Christ the resurrection Paul says demonstrated the power of God by it Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power amen he By his own power, raised himself from the dead. By his own power, he said, you take this, you destroy this temple, uh, and in three days, uh, I'm gonna raise it up again. Uh, You put me in the grave, uh, and in three days, uh, by my own power, I'm gonna get up again, amen. That power was determined to be the power of God. That's the claim. That's the validation. Of the deity of Jesus Christ. He was crucified. He was laid in a tomb. But by his own power, he got up again. Amen. He lived again. Now, it is interesting to note that that last part of that verse, by the resurrection from the dead, it reads in the King James. The Greek actually says, the dead. Plural. The plural in the Greek is an instance of what linguists call generalizing the plural. It indicates that the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't a singular event, but it is the first of many resurrections that are going to take place by that same power. It is the beginning that Jesus Christ was the first fruits of that resurrecting power. And that resurrection that he experienced, others are going to experience too. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ was by the power of God. It was the power of God that rose him up out of that grave. It's an illusion that Paul will solidify when we get eight chapters into Romans. In the 8th chapter, in the 11th verse, Paul is going to say, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So what we see here is... Jesus' claim to deity is the resurrection from the dead, but it was not just his resurrection here. He's going to resurrect those who die in him. Amen. Those who die in Christ, amen, have a promise of eternal life. They're going to be raised from the dead just like he was raised from the dead by the same spirit. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, but it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to repent of your sins and get baptized in his name. You need to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost because if that same spirit which dwelt in Christ Jesus dwells in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by that spirit that dwells in you. Amen? So we have the promise of the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Through Jesus Christ, Paul received grace and apostleship. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't worthy of it. He couldn't earn it. We talked about this last week. He was on a crusade to destroy the Christian church. He was consumed by a bloodlust. He was excited by the blood of the martyr Stephen and it was his desire to see that replicated everywhere he went and he went with authority. The Sanhedrin court had empowered him and he could go and do what he wanted to do and he was consumed with a bloodlust to see the Christians die and God saved him by grace. He didn't deserve it. He couldn't earn it. He wasn't good enough for it. He was an enemy of the cross. He was obsessed with destroying this thing. And he was saved by the grace of God. Not only was he saved by grace, he was called to be an apostle by the absolute, unqualified, unmerited grace of God. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't worthy of it. Nothing in his life said, I deserve to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. But God called him anyway. Paul was just like you, just like me. He wasn't good enough to be saved. He wasn't good enough to deserve salvation. He wasn't good enough to be able to expect that when I repent of my sins, God will forgive me. He wasn't good. There was nothing in his life. There was no ground upon which he could stand and ask for mercy and grace from God. He was saved by the absolute unmerited favor of God. Let me tell you something. If you walk through heaven's door, you're going to do it by the grace of God. You're not going to earn your way into heaven. You're not going to deserve your way into heaven. You're not going to be good enough to get there you're going to get there by the grace of God God will save you by his grace amen and so Paul was just like us he was saved by grace but he didn't stop there that grace was given to Paul for the express purpose of producing obedience to the faith or as the New International Version puts it, the obedience that comes from the faith. The Greek is clear here. The obedience in the Greek springs from the faith. From the outset, the book of Romans makes it clear. Genuine faith will always produce obedience. Genuine faith can never be separated from obedience obedience springs from obedience comes from it is the product of faith. You can't tell me you have faith if you don't have obedience because you can't separate obedience from faith. The faith that saves you, the faith that brings you into the unmerited favor of God, the grace of God is a faith that produces works in your life. It's a faith that produces obedience in your life. That's important. Because the doctrine of justification by faith is the centerpiece of the book of Romans. And right here in the introductory comments, right at the very beginning, Paul establishes the very strong, inseparable link that exists between faith and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But preacher, I believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you'll obey the gospel. You'll repent of your sins. You'll be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost just like was preached in the book of Acts. This isn't two separate doctrines. This isn't two separate religions. This is one singular statement of faith. If you believe in him, you'll obey him. It's that simple. And so Paul sets that in motion, right here at the very beginning of the book of Romans. Now, he desires that obedience among all nations for his name. God desires that obedience from believers of all nations. That phrase seems to be intended to point out that this isn't exclusive to the Jews, this isn't exclusively a Hebrew religion. God desires that all nations, that everyone, everywhere will exalt the name of Jesus, not just the Jews. He wants everyone to experience this salvation by grace, through faith, unto obedience. By the name of Jesus. He wants everyone, everywhere, of every nationality to experience that. And we, uh, we reinforce that understanding with verse 6, which says, Among whom are ye also... The call of Jesus Christ. So Paul points out that his readers are among that number. Everyone, everywhere. Among all nations. They are among that number. They're Gentiles. Remember the majority of the Roman church is Gentiles. And so they're Gentiles. But God desires to see his name exalted among them too not just the Jews, not just the Hebrews, not just those that can trace their lineage back to Abraham, but those who can trace their faith back to Abraham. Those who can declare, I've got the same kind of faith that Abraham had, a faith that produces obedience in my life. And so the calling of God is is to all people everywhere. They're included. These Greeks, these Romans these gentiles in the in the church in Rome to whom Paul writes they are included in the work of faith through obedience to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And so he says among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So next he points out they may be gentiles but they're part of the church because this is to everybody. And just like He was called. Remember back in verse 1, he's the servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. Now in verse 6, we're identifying the audience as called to. Paul's not the only one who's been called. He's not the only one who God has set them aside for a purpose. God has a purpose for the lives of the Roman Christians too. God has a purpose for the lives of the people that Paul is writing to. God has set them aside too. As a matter of fact I can tell you on the basis of the word of God that God has a purpose for your life too. God has called you too. Not just Paul. Paul wasn't just a singular human whom God picked out of all the world to call according to his purpose. But he said you were called too. You were called for the purpose of God. God's got a plan for your life too. God's got everything that's happened in your life up to this point and place where you are has happened for a purpose because God's got a divine call and a divine plan for your life. It's not just Paul that can say I'm a Jew and a Roman and I, I was schooled in the best of places and I've had these great experiences and everything in my life works together for this divine calling of God. God has set me apart for his calling. But what he said is if you're reading this letter I've got news for you. You're called too. God's got a reason for your life too. God's got a purpose for you too. Everything that's happened to you has happened for a cause. Because God has a calling for you, we are called according to the purpose of God, and He says we are called. Uh, we are called of Jesus Christ, or called by Jesus Christ. All who are in Je- all, they back up everybody who is in Christ Jesus. The Scripture says it's called according to. His purpose. When we think of the fact that we're Christians, we're inclined to think of that in terms of what we do. I'm a Christian, so I go to church. I'm a Christian, so I have faith or I have commitment or I do. But Paul stresses that this idea of being a Christian is God's initiative. We are people whom God has called. God has a purpose for us. God has a plan for us. God has set us on this road. God has a direction for our lives. It is incumbent upon us, just like it was incumbent upon Paul, to find God's plan and get in it. Not to say, God, move your plan to where I want to go, but to say, God, I want to get in your plan and go where you want me to go. Not to say, God, I I want you to work things out so I can do what I want to do, but to say, God, I want you to work things out so that I can get right in the middle of your wheel and do what you want me to do. Called of Jesus Christ is the way that, that verse ends, and it's poorly rendered. The word of in the Greek is possessive, and it literally means those who are called belong to Jesus Christ. Did you see what just happened? We started with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, the slave. He belongs to Jesus. And he's called according to the purpose of God, called to be an apostle. Now we're coming to the end of this introduction of who he is, and he's turned the tables. And his readers are now called, and they belong to Jesus. See, we get this vision, this view of Paul. Paul says the most important thing about my life, the first thing I want you to know is I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I am coin in the master's hand and he can spin me any way he wants to spin me. He doesn't owe me an explanation. He doesn't owe me understanding. He doesn't owe me any type of of understanding of why he does what he does. I am a coin in his hands and he can spin me however he wants to spin me because I am called according to his purpose and now he says you're in the same boat you're called by him and you belong to him Amen. You belong to Jesus Christ. You too are the servant of Jesus Christ. You too are the bondservant of him, the slave. Uh, Everything in your life uh, is for the pleasure of your master. Everything in your life uh, is for the pleasure of God. You belong to Jesus the same way that Paul belongs to Jesus. There's a lot of good teaching right there. He starts out by saying... I want you to understand, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ. I am called. And he's going to end by saying, you too are the servant of Jesus Christ. And you are called. The important thing about that is there's a responsibility attached to your calling. God called you with a purpose. And if you're called, you belong to him. Your life is his you're the servant of Jesus Christ. You are a coin in the master's hand and he can spend you however he wants to spend you and he doesn't owe you an explanation and he doesn't owe you understanding. Amen. I want sometimes to see the whole road. I want sometimes to understand where he's taking me. But my Bible says that all he's responsible for is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. All I need to know from God is where my next step is. I want the whole journey and I want the whole road. He doesn't owe me that for him I am the servant and he is the master amen and I walk where he says walk and I go where he says go and I do what he says do and I say what he says say that's your responsibility to the calling of God on your life Paul said I'm separated into that call you too are separated into that call that's the message You're supposed to be completely at your master's disposal. What a powerful statement. And finally, Romans 1 and 7. To all that be in Rome. Remember, we got Paul 2. We got all of that stuff in between Paul and 2. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, Called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So to all that be in Rome we come to the address the two. The letter is addressed to all the believers in Rome. Those are the intended recipients, those are the people that he's talking to. And he calls them beloved of God. They're loved by God. And he says that they are called to be saints now saint is a term frequently used in the New Testament to denote note Christians in general it reminds us of the essential character of being a Christian the word basically signifies set apart or separated and we've talked a lot this morning about the fact Paul was set apart as a Hebrew the Hebrews regarded themselves as the saints of the most high God by calling Christians saints, what, what Paul was saying is that that, ex, that exclusive designation as set apart ones isn't something just for the Jews. It isn't something just for the Hebrews. It's for those that belong to Jesus Christ. You are saints. You are set apart. Just like we said earlier, Paul said as a, as a Pharisee he was set apart, but now as a Christian he's set apart too. What he's saying is you're not exempt from that. You're saints. You're set apart. You're called according to God's purpose. You belong to him. You have been separated unto him. Now, when we think about set apart and separated, we think about it in a negative context. We say separated from something. But what Paul really is doing here is is thinking of it in a positive context, separated to something. Sometimes we get our focus wrong. We think we become part of the church. we got to quit doing all that stuff in the world. We become a part of the church, we're separated from the world. The emphasis is all wrong. When I become a part of the church, I receive all the blessings of the inheritance of heaven. I'm separated to him. It's not about what I left behind. It's about where I'm going. It's not about what I don't do. It's about what I do. It's not about what, I, what I'm not allowed to go and do. It's about what I am allowed to receive in Jesus Christ. It's the direction that matters. And sometimes we get our focus fixed on the rear view mirror and everything we're leaving behind. And honey, you need to lift your eyes to heaven and see everything that you're going towards. Amen. What you're receiving from him is greater than what you're leaving behind. What you're getting from him, what you're separated to is greater than what you are separated from. Does that make sense? And so we it's a positive thing not a negative thing we belong to God we're set apart for him. We're called to be his his people. Everything about this Christian life, everything about a separated life, everything about a life of holiness and godliness and righteousness, it's not about the stuff I don't do. It's not about the stuff I'm not allowed to do. It's not about the stuff that I left behind. It's about the, what, I, what I do receive, what I am a part of, where I am going, what I have in my life that I didn't have before that precious fellowship with Jesus Christ that I can't have if I'm a part of this world that's where the focus is I am separated to him and so that word saint contains a challenge for faithful Christian service but by being a saint by saying that you are a saint of God that means that you are called to be sanctified you're called to be separated you're called to be consecrated you're called to be dedicated to god we are his peculiar people his chosen people his holy people a royal priesthood we belong to him and he belongs to us and finally he says grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ Paul's Christian form of greeting is grace and peace. Now, the standard Greek greeting was simply the word greetings. Paul to the Romans, greetings. But Paul substitutes grace for greetings. Now, the standard Hebrew greeting was shalom, peace. And Paul uses the Greek equivalent of peace. And what he has done here is he has combined both the Greek greeting and the Hebrew greeting into one single Christian greeting, grace and peace. But he has made a significant change. He's not done greetings and peace. He's done grace and peace. And that change is more than just a blending of the two cultures. It's a brilliant statement of cause and effect. Grace is the cause and peace is the effect. We are saved by the unmerited favor of God. And that results in a harmony with God, a tranquility in our soul. We receive from God grace and it builds within us or produces in our lives peace. It's a statement of cause and effect. It's a Christian greeting that that says that we receive from, from grace peace. There's no peace like the peace of knowing I am His, and He is mine. And I get that from the grace of God in my life. Amen? Now, both grace and peace come from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we become the recipients of, of both grace and peace. The man Christ Jesus was the mediator between God and man and through his redemptive work we receive grace from God which yields peace in our life. That greeting phrase is typical of Paul's epistles. That greeting emphasizes the necessity. Through It actually says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It emphasizes the necessity of not only acknowledging God as creator and father, which the Jews and many pagans did, but also acknowledges God's revelation in Jesus Christ. It emphasizes that God's provision of salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to get into the Greek for a minute. Bear with me. I won't be here very long. We're almost done. It's important to note, first of all, that in the Greek, the article the before Lord doesn't exist. It's nowhere in the Greek language. Verse 7 literally says, if you were to translate it word for word, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word and is the Greek word "kai." And that conjunction can be translated two ways. Either and or even. The The choice is up to the translator based upon the context. So the phrase could be translated from God our Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's where the grammar comes into play. When you compare Romans 1 and 7 to other places in Scripture, you see that Paul intends to make a strong indication to identify God, the Father, and Jesus Christ as the same person. Grammatically, that's exactly what this wording means. There's a rule. I told you I didn't get into Greek scholarship here. You just got to give me a minute. There's a rule called the Granville Sharp's Rule, and it applies to this scripture. The Granville Sharp's Rule says, if two nouns... Of the same number and gender and case. So the two nouns are God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Same number, singular, same gender, same case. If those two nouns are connected by chi, and if the first noun has the definite article the, but the second noun does not, so we got the, And it's in the Greek from the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second doesn't have it. The the appears earlier in the text. If you have that layout in Greek, then it says both nouns refer to the same thing. That's the rule. Two nouns are connected. The definite definite article doesn't appear in the second one. Then both nouns refer to the same thing. That's important. Because it it affects the translation. It would be easier translated, be better translated, would be translated more accurately with probably even instead of and, and leave the the out altogether. It would be translated more accurately from God our Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ, identifying both as the same. Does that make sense? I tell you that just so that you, you see the inner working of how translation works, the inner working of how lots of times what we understand is oneness doctrine gets obscured in translation. But the, the simple fact is this. If if you want to twist this statement into saying there are two in the Godhead, you got to break the rules of translation you want to twist this and that's what's happened over time if you want to twist this statement into saying that these are two individual persons or two individual concepts or two individual entities you've got to break the rules of greek translation that the specific case applies the granville sharps rule applies there's only one person that's being referred to here god our father even the lord jesus christ one and the same and that's the way paul teaches it elsewhere that's the way he teaches it throughout his writing he identifies god the father and the lord jesus christ as the same being and if you remember we ran into this in james and we ran into this in first peter this isn't the first time we've seen this rule applied there's a lot of references in the new testament where god the father and lord jesus christ are connected by chi connected by the and without a definitive article Is intended to denote the fact that they are the same. Amen? Now I know that's kind of technical and that's not a real uh, high point upon which to end a lesson, but that brings us to the conclusion of the introduction. It gets us to the end of this introductory passage. John MacArthur is a very respected theologian and scholar and he said this of this seven-verse passage that we've just read. He said the entire thrust of the 16 chapters of the book of Romans is distilled into those first seven verses. What you just got was the condensed version of everything you're going to get in the book of Romans. You just got the... if You know those that say just mail me the cliff notes. That's what you just got. The cliff notes of the entire book of Romans we've just seen in condensed form what Paul is about to unfold in the rest of the book here he has crafted a powerful statement he has touched on all the essential aspects of New Testament salvation we've talked about the gospel We've talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about the incarnation. We've talked about the resurrection. We've talked about the spirit. We've talked about holiness. We've talked about grace. We've talked about faith. We've talked about obedience. And we've even talked about the importance of the name of Jesus. Everything that you find doctrinally represented in the book of Romans, you find doctrinally represented right here in these seven verses. And at the same time, Paul has successfully introduced the theme of the letter, justification by faith and has inseparably linked it to obedience obedience springs from that faith James said show me your faith without works you can't do it but I'll show you my faith by my works because genuine saving faith produces obedience would you stand with me We will carefully unpack this doctrine over the next few months, the doctrine of justification by faith. We'll be months going through, possibly even over a year, going through the book of Romans, verse by verse, with the same kind of in-depth look that we've taken this morning. And as we explore the book of Romans, we'll be looking at the writing of one of the most intellectual disciples of Jesus Christ, and one of the most skilled writers of the New Testament writers. Everything that we see... Everything that we study will reflect the principles that we've shared in short form this morning. At the beginning, Paul says, let me state who I am, what I teach, and who you are. And that's pretty much the breakdown of the book of Romans. We're going to talk about what you're called to be. We're going to talk about how you become a part of that. And what your responsibility is to that calling. Amen. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus, I love you.